Hello everyone and welcome to the June 2023 Mark Leverage podcast. I'm really delighted that you've decided to join me and for the next 45 minutes I've got all sorts of topics lined up to have a chat with you about. Now in the same way that for some people the middle of February every year signifies the Blackpool Magic Convention, so for some of us the last weekend in April indicates that it's time once again for the 4Fs Magic Convention in the United States. 4Fs, incidentally, if you don't know what the 4Fs stand for, it's Fectus Finger Flicking Frolic, which is easier to attend than it is to actually say, which is why everybody calls it the 4Fs, is an invitation-only close-up magic convention that was started back in the 1970s by Eddie Fector in the Forks Hotel in New York State. It started as a collection of close-uppers getting together to session for a few days in a hotel and gradually over the years it's expanded and now about 200 to 250 people get to go each year. It's a fantastic event and one of the reasons why it's different from any other event that I've certainly that I've ever been to is that it is rather elitist. You can't just think to yourself, hmm, think I'd go to 4Fs, I'll pay my money and turn up. It's not like that at all. You have to be sponsored by people who are already able to go and you have to be of a certain performing standard in order to be accepted as one of the attendees. In fact, the first time that you go and sometimes the second and even the third time that you go, you will be put on the bill. You will need to perform. And if your performance is not up to scratch, then strangely, you won't get an invitation back. The result of all this is that the standard of performance, generally speaking, is very high. Certainly the bar is set high and and works upwards from there. And they often will book acts who are, for instance, FISM winners or who are very, very highly regarded in the magic world. So it's brilliant when you're in. It's a brilliant event to go to. But you might wonder, given the cost of certainly for for us in the UK to get over to the United States and to stay for a few days in a hotel and to attend the convention, what is it that that sort of motivates you, if you like, to do it year after year? Well, it's really because the event itself, apart from the fact that the standard magic is great, as I've said, but they have this way of creating an aura around both the event itself and also the people who attend. As one person memorably put it when he came out to perform, he said, well, this is weird. Um, I'm entertaining all the people in the front row. I have their books on my bookshelf. It's that kind of um, level of attendee. And it it is interesting, I think, that they create this club-like atmosphere they, they are always reminding people how many times certain people have attended. They have a guest of honour each time and they have this great list of all the guests of honour over the, over the 50 years that the thing has been going and taking place. There are, there are so many, they have a special pin badge that you're supposed to, to wear every time you wear a jacket with the 4Fs logo on it. All the time it's a, it, they are telling you you are special, you are part of this convention, you are welcome here, you're part of the club. And there is something slightly intoxicating about that. 
The other thing is that when you go on a regular basis, you, you make a lot of friends, of course, and all the friends, as they do at magic conventions generally, they tend to come from all areas of the world, perhaps, and collect together. But because it's a relatively, everything takes place in one hotel and it's fairly intimate, you get to talk to and session with just about anybody who attends, if quite frankly, if you want to. There is a lot of stuff going on in the lobby and in other places around the hotel. So it's they, they encourage this. They have hospitality suites after the shows in the evening where people can go and chat and do magic informally. So the whole thing creates this lovely atmosphere. And when you've been going for a while, you really do feel part of something special. And it keeps making you want to go back, which, of course, is excellent marketing on their part. Plus the fact that virtually everybody who attends ends up at some stage performing you don't get paid to perform, you pay to go and then you perform because it's an honour to perform at 4Fs, of course. So again, brilliant marketing. It's a way of keeping costs down and yet still providing a high octane event. So that's why I'm, I will travel 3,000 odd miles in order to attend. It's because I like being part of the club and I love to be able to mix with people of high standard and to listen to what they have to say and watch the magic that they do. It's really inspiring. My longest standing friend in magic is Chris Payne, who I've mentioned, I think, before on this podcast. Chris and I met almost 50 years ago in 1974 when we were both at Bristol University together. I was studying languages and he was studying to be a GP. And we found that obviously we had magic in common and we've been sort of magically connected ever since. In fact, for 40 years, while he was still a GP and then doing other things in the medical line, he used to help me come to conventions such as the IBM or Blackpool and sometimes FISM abroad. And he would help me on my dealer stand. And at one stage he even learnt which was an incredible uh, act of faith here, he actually learnt how to perform many of my marketed products so that he could dem them as well as, which considering that he wasn't doing this full time, was, uh, was quite something. And our association over that time was mainly one way. It was him helping me out and then going back after the convention, going back to his medical profession and then basically forgetting magic until the next time he came with me again. So it's rather nice that when he retired 10 years ago, took early retirement, that he was able to go back to devoting a lot more of his time to magic, something which um, he'd always wanted to do, but just simply hadn't had the time before. And it's been fascinating over the last decade, watching how his interest in magic has been rekindled and the direction in which it's taken. Chris, in the early days, although he did do stage magic, in fact, he won the Young Magician of the Year competition, the Magic Circles competition, when he was very young. Um, and he also won the British Ring IBM Close-Up competition as well. And in his early days, he did a lot of close-up magic. And these days, he he's more into stand-up or parlour-type magic. And it's interesting watching how he is developing gradually, piece by piece, components to put into a stand-up act. Chris is one of these people who likes to slightly obsess about a, a plot or some sort of presentational hook. He'll find a routine that he's interested in. He'll go to Dennis Baer's um, database and find the various books and places where he can find references to it and different routines. He'll buy various versions of it that are, versions of it that are commercially available. 
and he will generally research it and take bits from here and bits from there and very slowly and very painstakingly put a routine that feels convenient and good to him into place and he will um, sort of worry about the smallest finesse the smallest handling change and given that so many people sort of go to a magic dealer buy a product take it home read quickly read or watch the instructions and basically get on and do it Chris has completed the opposite process. He, he, he won't do anything with it, for, sometimes for months, while he's fine-tuning it to make it as best for his own performing personality and performance uh, way as he possibly can. And the result of this is that he has gradually put together a number of tricks which are extremely good. I mean, he's always been technically very proficient, but it's, it's the thinking behind it and the levels that he will go to. He reminds me a little bit of Tommy Wonder in, in, in the level that he takes his thinking to, where he will go for very small changes, which in his mind anyway, even if it's perhaps not even overtly noticed by an audience, it, he feels it's important to add just an extra layer of perhaps um, complexity or make it even more fooling for lay people to watch. So... I think we could all learn a lot from his slightly obsessive way of doing things. It wouldn't suit all of us. And of course, I mean, he spends quite a lot of money in getting all the bits and pieces together, lots of versions of it before he decides on which one is the right one. And that wouldn't suit everybody. But I think just being prepared to go that extra mile, to think about things properly rather than rushing to get it done, um, would benefit a lot of people and would create uh, better routines which are more suited to our performance style once we go out and entertain lay people. When you're putting together or trying to learn a new routine, there may well be moves in that routine that you have to practice. Uh, it could be that there are moves which you haven't done for ages and you feel a bit rusty with them, or it could be that you've never done them before at all, ever, and so you have to learn them from scratch. But either way, a certain amount of effort will probably be required in order to get them up to scratch, because obviously in order to perform the routine, you need to be able to do them smoothly. And the only way to get to do them smoothly is to repeatedly practice the, the fingering required in order to make the thing work. So they always say that you should practice, practice and then practice again. But of course, one of the things that that doesn't really tell you is how to pace or what rhythm to use when actually performing a move. You know, you practice the logistics of it, getting your fingering just right. So if it's a card move, for instance, so that you can, let's say, an Elmsley count, you need to be able to do that double push off and to count the cards so that it looks imperceptible. But what that doesn't necessarily tell you is how to make the rhythm of the count itself just right so that it looks like you are literally thumbing off four cards in exactly the same way rather than doing a move on the second card and I think trying to get to grips with the timing and the rhythm of a move is as important as being able to technically do it in the first place you think about a Hammond count where you're swapping two two packets of cards 
you see people do it and they go one two three four five six seven eight you know it there's an obvious discrepancy at the moment when the actual move takes place in the count and if that's the case then it it obviously to an audience watching will be fairly apparent that even if they don't know what has happened that something has happened so i think the, the importance of getting that rhythm right and also getting the pace right because another thing that happens is with over practice you get to the point where you can perform a move technically very um, slickly and the temptation then is to do it fast now in, i would suggest that in most cases speed extreme speed anyway is certainly not what you should be going for you don't need to do it really really fast and sometimes slowing the whole thing down and having an even pace but a very casual pace is more deceptive than doing a move incredibly fast you know it's almost like they talk about the quickness of the hand deceives the eye totally not true you can often get away with things by moving slowly and doing very slight movements rather than doing something very sudden when you do something very sudden it draws attention to it I think the same is with a move. If you do, an, again, let's go back to the Elmsley count. If you do an Elmsley count very slowly, I mean, not very, very slowly, but just at a very slow yet even pace, I would suggest that's more deceptive and looks more natural than if you do it 90 miles an hour, bang, 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 bang. That just, yes, it might be perfect, but it looks slightly in the midst of a, of a routine perhaps that isn't going at that pace to suddenly do a move just because you can do it well at a high speed doesn't necessarily in my view make it more deceptive so uh, getting that pace and, and that's something that if somebody shows you how to do a move they can probably tell you no slow that down a bit or do it like this or do it like that but if you're reading about it if uh, in a book it's very hard to tell unless it very specifically tells you um, a pace in some way, which it wouldn't, won't normally, then you don't really have much of an idea what it's supposed to be like. This is where, of course, video is great because a good teacher on video can show you the pace that, it, that a move needs to be done at in order to be truly deceptive. And when you see somebody else do it well and do it at the, with the right rhythm and the right pace, then obviously that gives you a clue as to what you should be aiming for in order to do it equally proficiently. So getting that, that pace and that rhythm is, I think, every bit as important as the actual practice of the logistical movement of the fingers. One of the most interesting parts of the programme at 4Fs, which I was mentioning earlier in the podcast, is something that they call Ed Talks. These are effectively the magic equivalent of TED Talks. And Ed Talks is where they get three or four people to do 15 minutes each talking about a particular subject. Now, usually this is not anything specifically to do with tricks. It's not a lecture with a perform a trick and then explain it type of format. But these are general, more general topics, which can be anything. And this year we had one on hypnotism in close-up. We had stage magic illusions we had all sorts of things and one of the ones that uh, that we had was by Keith Fields who is a very experienced 
um, professional magician who comes from England but lives in the United States and has done for some time and he did one on audience management and I've got a lot of time for Keith because I, I think he really knows what he's talking about and I've seen two Ed talks by him and they've both been excellent. In his one on audience management which again I thoroughly enjoyed he um, quoted something about the difference between close-up magic and stage magic that I found rather interesting. He was um, quoting John Armstrong, who apparently has said the following, close-up is a conversation, stage magic is a presentation. And I thought, that's totally brilliant, because that really does, in very few words, sum up the difference between what it's like when you're a close-up magician and what it's like when you're a stage or parlor show magician. Close-up is a conversation. It really is, isn't it? Uh, certainly the way that I perform close-up, it is very much a, an informal and conversation-like process. I have chats with people and surround the chats with magic. It's not in any way a presentation piece. At least it very rarely is. I suppose at tables, when you're at a big dinner function, and you've got five minutes per table and you rush up and you do a trick without much personality because you just don't have the time, do a couple of tricks and move on. That's perhaps not a conversation. But generally speaking, commercial close-up can be, certainly working in restaurants and places and private parties and places like that, where you have a little bit more time to develop personality. It certainly is a conversation. I absolutely love that. Close-up is a conversation. And I think that I've always said that a conversational approach to close-up magic is the way to go because it's much more engaging for people. It breaks down that fourth wall, gets everybody, you, into the little group that you're just joining for a few minutes in order to entertain. It helps everybody to relax and just creates a nice atmosphere for you to perform in. Stage magic is a presentation. Well, of course, the... The fact that there is a distance between a stage magician, between you as the performer and your audience out in the auditorium, automatically means you lose much of the intimacy that close-up affords. So you almost by default are having to present things, to show things. Yes, you can, of course, get spectators out of the audience they can come up on the stage and help and of course most stage performers unless it's a silent manipula manipulation act probably would get people out if it's a patter act and that's how you create a bit more intimacy by having somebody from the audience but other than that you are presenting what you whatever magic you're doing in a much more theatrical way there are broader um, sort of mannerisms and the patter is more talking at them rather than talking with them. It is completely different to what it's like doing close-up. And I think that's possibly why quite often close-up magicians don't necessarily make good stage magicians and vice versa. It's because the presentational techniques required are so very, very different. Close-up magicians may not have the understanding of how to work a stage, how to work an audience that's at a distance, how to use the bigger space to the best advantage both of the performance and of, and of the audience watching. Similarly, stage performers might not know how to make the intimate contact that's required for good close-up magic. 
they may be trying to be too broad in their mannerisms and, and the way they present stuff. And so it takes a special person who can do both, perhaps, with equal skill. So there you are. Isn't that interesting? Close up is a conversation. Stage magic is a presentation. Very sage words, I think, from John Armstrong. When you are a commercial close up magician, there naturally enough is a, re a restriction on the number of props and therefore tricks that you can carry with you. And this means that if you've got a busy evening, let's say you're doing 15 tables or more, that the likelihood is you're going to repeat several times a lot of the tricks that you're carrying on you because you couldn't, if you were to do a different set of tricks at every single table, you would need too much material, more than you can carry. And in any case, it wouldn't make much sense to not repeat tricks when the people at the, each table haven't seen what you've done elsewhere. But the only problem with this is that when you do this a lot, especially if you have, let's say, a residency somewhere where you're working perhaps more than one night a week in the same place, after a while, it's easy to become a bit numb to the whole process of performing certain tricks. You've done them so often that you almost kind of switch into an autopilot mode. And although it may not be noticeable to you, you're still doing the lines and doing the tricks and performing as you think in a totally normal way, people who are watching you for the first time might notice that you're slightly, perhaps even disconnected somewhat from the material that you're presenting. I mean, this, this is an accusation that is leveled at certain famous magicians who work stage magic for long, long periods of time, night after night, particularly in, in America, where the places like Vegas have shows that run for years. And although some of the material will be routinely changed, basically the act is the same. And sometimes the performers are accused of being a bit on autopilot. They've done it so many times, it's almost just going through the motions. And I think audiences can pick up on this because they aren't seeing it for the 50th time. They are seeing it for the first time. Even if you're performing it for the 200th time, they still deserve your best shot. And performers such as, for instance, I was talking with some friends of mine about this, Mac King, how well he does in making every show he does appear fresh. He does lots of long runs and does the same show. But because he's a good actor, he can um, act the part of being interested that nearly every line he says, every gag that he comes out with, every aside that he makes, it looks to all intents and purposes to an audience seeing it for the first time that he's ad-libbing, that it's all fresh. It's not. None of it is. He's done it hundreds and hundreds of times before, but he's not on autopilot. Or if he is, he's concealing it extremely well. And I think that's a fantastic skill to have. If you can make every performance come up as completely fresh, even though you're doing the same tricks with the same pattern in the same order time and time again, making that really come up as if it's the first time you've ever done it is a, is a fantastic asset to have and will make your performance so much better. I mean, you can see the same with, with actors on long runs of a play that sometimes toward the end of the run, they, they almost, they might as well mentally not be there at all because all the lines and all the actions and everything are, are so automatic. And it's easy for them to 
take out as a result some of the spontaneity or apparent spontaneity of their performances because they've done it so often there's none left and they've forgotten how to make it feel like it's the first time well magicians don't normally do quite as much performing as somebody on a run of a play that's lasting for months on end but nevertheless every time we go out to perform if in an e just in an evening we do the same trick 12 times can you honestly say that the 12th time you do it you do it with the same enthusiasm spontaneity freshness upbeat nature as you did the first one of the evening well, you get tired, don't you? You even get a little bit bored. If ever there was a reason to change some of your material as often as possible, it's getting bored and getting too familiar with the material that you are using, even though it feels comfortable to do so, to use it. So keeping that spontaneity alive and making sure that you, if you possibly can, keep it as fresh as possible, I think that is a great thing to aim for. And certainly I'm sure lay people should feel every time they see you perform that you are literally doing this for the first time and it's just for them. Now, dis despite the proliferation of magic online and in video format in other ways as well, I still am one of those people who enjoy a good book, a good magic book. And over the years, I've bought many books, some of which I've read from cover to cover others of which I've merely dipped into, and one or two which I'm shocked and embarrassed to say I've virtually not opened. I suppose it's a familiar uh, thing that all of us at some point do where we go to a convention, get excited, buy something, put it on the bookshelf and then forget we've actually got it. But I was thinking about the, the benefits of books over video and, and how the way that I read magic books has changed over the years. When I was when I was young, I was looking for tricks all the time. I was looking for new moves that I could practice and use. So I was very much into the material of it all. Whereas gradually over the years, as I've got more and more tricks in my repertoire, my need for more actual tricks to perform has re has reduced significantly. I'm now much more interested in the theory behind magic and a more sort of peripheral types of book that give me background information that is nothing to do perhaps with the tricks, but with audience management and, and, and how you present stuff and so on. I find that more interesting or even backgrounds on magicians themselves. But the, the point about the tricks books, most books are here's a trick, here's how it's done. The point about those is the way that I read those now, as I realise, has also has changed. I still quite like reading tricks in books, but I don't think I ever read it with the intention of finding new material that I'm going to take out that book and just do. Because what I found has happened is that the reading of a particular trick of somebody else's, it kind of sparks sometimes ideas of my own. It can send me off on, a, on my own train of thought. And I don't quite know how it works because often it's nothing to do precisely with the workings of the trick that I'm reading about. It, it, it's almost like it stimulates my grey matter to the point where I think, oh, you could do so-and-so. And suddenly I find myself going off at a complete tangent, ignoring the book and the trick I was reading in the book and start to think about the idea that's just occurred to me. 
And I think that using books in this way as an inspiration for other things has become the single most important way that I read trick books these days. I don't, I can't remember the last time that I took a trick out of a book to actually put into my commercial repertoire. But there have been lots of times when I've been reading about a particular routine or a trick or an idea for a trick in a book that has then spurred me on to do something of my own. It might be related or as, as I say, it, it might not. In my in my house, I, I've got, I've mentioned this before, I think, but I've got a, a bookcase which is in the hallway at the top of the stairs in, in, in the sort of on the landing. And one of the things that I quite like to do is when I'm walking past, if I've got a few minutes, I'll stop, grab a book off the bookshelf at random. I just open it up and start reading. And my wife always teases me. She, she said, you're doing it again. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing what? You're standing on the hallway reading a book, a magic book. And it's, it's because I only do it perhaps for 10 minutes. But sometimes just picking out a book at random and opening it up at random and just reading whatever I happen to have happened to come across will sometimes trigger a thought, spur an idea that I can then put the book away and go off and pursue. And if I didn't have the books accessible in that way, if I hadn't been walking past and if I hadn't pulled that particular book off the shelf, some of the ideas that I've subsequently come up with, I would never have even started because it is almost impossible to create anything in a vacuum. You need some sort of a stimulus, whether it's a comment that somebody makes, whether it's a movie that you're shown, or in my case, whether you're reading of a trick in a book. That is the thing that gives me the spur to go on and create stuff myself. So that's why I love books. They're a constant source of inspiration. Last month, I had the pleasure of presenting another one of my Zoom evenings. This one was called the Commercial Close-Up Refresher Session. And it was an evening dedicated to strolling magic in the first half and table hopping magic in the second half. And we had a goodly number of people who turned up, to whom thanks, by the way. I hope they enjoyed it. And it was, a, I think, a very interesting evening. And of course, although it's not a live event in the sense of we're not all in the same room as together, it soon does, of course, give people the opportunity to ask questions. So there were three questions in particular that uh, I was asked as part of that evening. And I thought it might be interesting just to tell you what they were and to tell you what my response was to them. And the first question was to do with um, whether... I thought it was a good idea to use props in close-up that showed that I'd obviously spent quite a bit of money on acquiring them. In other words, quality props. I'm not altogether sure what was meant by that, but it's rather the equivalent of saying, if you're a children's entertainer, is it a good idea to put out your table and then cover it with all of the wooden cut-out props that you intend to use in your show in order to let the booker see that you've spent a lot of money and that therefore their money in booking you has been justified. So and this question came and I think it was meant to be along those lines. Well, I suppose the obvious answer, well, it seemed obvious to me, was uh, no, it doesn't make any difference at all because provided that the for instance, the pack of cars you use is not incredibly tatty 
or the ropes that were once white, you've used them so much in close-up, they've turned grey and the ends have all frayed. Obviously, you don't want tatty stuff. So as long as it's presentable, what the props are, surely, is not the important thing at all. What is more important, naturally enough, I would imagine anyway, certainly in my case, I feel it is, is what you do with those props. Are you a good entertainer? I mean, you think about it, there are quite a few magicians who do little else other than card tricks. Now, you could say, well, all they need is a pack of cards then. Well, yes, probably they do. If the card magic that they present is entertaining, nobody's going to say afterwards, yeah, well, it was all right, but he only had one pack of cards. I mean, if they do say that, then it means that performer probably wasn't entertaining enough and really needs to have a rethink. But certainly the fact that he only had a pack of cards shouldn't really be the issue. It's more what he does with that pack of cards. And I think when I think about the sort of magic that I do, it's it's all almost without exception. It's using everyday objects. It's It's using coins and cards, finger rings, pieces of rope, money, you know, paper money. It's sometimes things that I've been able to borrow from spectators, like credit cards and things like that. So it's it's basically ordinary, everyday objects. And in a way, I've always thought that, that is the strength of close-up, that it doesn't have to use overt magic props. I suppose the only prop that comes to mind that I do use that is an obvious magic, magic prop is a Nikito box. And one of my favourite routines to do in walkabout is my um, walkabout coin box routine, which uses a Nikita box, a coin, and a sponge ball. And, and I use that routine a lot. And I don't attempt to justify what this box is. I just let people examine it because it, it, it's totally examinable. But other than that, everything, pretty much everything else that I use is, an ob is not an obvious magic prop at all. So that's the answer. The answer is no, I don't think it makes any difference. The second question was to do with, I have a routine called Reality Check, in which I basically it's a coin routine that I use in Walkabout, where I produce a jumbo coin, let's, let's say a, a dollar. That then vanishes. I then produce a large two pound coin, which is bigger. That then vanishes. No, sorry, it doesn't vanish. I give it out to be examined. And then I produce a, a five-inch giant Chinese coin. And they give that to, out to be examined. And obviously, having produced these, the two coins that are left in view, the dollar is, is vanished, but the other two are not, when I take them back, I have to put them somewhere. So I put one in one inside pocket and the other in the other inside pocket. And the question that a magician asked me was, do you think it gives the game away slightly because you're just putting them back in your pockets. Aren't people going to think that's where they came from? And I, funnily enough, I have thought about this in the past and wondered if that might be the case. But I've, I've actually never had a spectator, certainly to me anyway, mention that thought. They, they mentioned the thought with the big five-inch Chinese coin. Well, that couldn't have come down his sleeve. And that's the, pretty much the extent of their thinking about where it came from. If it's not up your sleeve, well, I've no idea. So when I put it away in the pockets, and I don't make a big thing of it, and then, of course, immediately move on to the next trick, which is the important thing here, of course, then where the coins have been now put isn't necessarily in the spectators' minds 
they don't think about it they don't relate it back to well, that's where it must have come from in the first place because they're already getting involved in the next trick in the route in, in the sequence or in the routine so i don't think it is a problem uh, sometimes it's i think it's possibly easy to to overthink these things isn't it but i don't know what else you could do with them in any case if once you've produced them short of vanishing them as i did with the first with the the, the, the dollar short of doing that then you have got to put them away somewhere. So it seems natural just to put them away in your pockets. As I said, I've never had a spectator question that or think that that's the answer to the trick. The third question concerned a routine that I'd shown called Colour Confusion, which is an up-in-the-hands colour-changing deck routine. And it uses a special pack of cards. And the question was, did I think it was a bit of a luxury to be able to have to carry around in my pocket a pack of cards that only did one trick, which is a, a totally valid point. My answer to that is that no, because that's the only special deck that basically can't be used for anything else that I do carry. I'd, all the other props I'm carrying, I can do two, sometimes three different tricks with. And so because I've got enough material with all the other props put together that I can get away with, if you like, taking out one pocket by the space in it, keeping this special deck of cards. And I think that's it's a, it's a good point, though, because if you have too many props that are only one trick props, then it can start to reduce the number of tricks that you can do. And I, I have to say that as a general principle, I do like to carry items that can be used in multiple effects. I have a double blank deck, for instance, which I use in two routines. I've got a handkerchief that I use in three routines. I've got an individual coin that I use in two routines, a regular deck of cards, which can be used in several routines, of course. I've got sponge balls, which I use in two different effects, and so on. So if for every prop, I've got at least two tricks, sometimes as I say three, it doubles or triples the amount of use that that particular prop gives me. And as a result of that, if I want to do something like Colour Confusion and have a special deck of cards that just does the one trick, I kind of feel, yeah, that's OK. I'm prepared to take that, that uh, trick along because it's only taking out one pocket. Uh, I have another trick as well called Printable, which is a sort of a packet trick, but which also, as part of the routine, uses a special deck. And that is one I will take as well, but not at the same time as Colour Confusion. I'll take one or other of them because I don't want to have two pockets with one trick decks in them. Um, but I am happy to have just the one. So I, I'm really, really interesting questions which weren't directly related really to the explanation of the tricks that I was showing in the presentation. But there were obviously things that had occurred to people from of sort of uh, in a wider sense about performance generally and and i and i love that about the zoom that it is possible for people to be able to ask that even though we're not all in the same room together and that you can sometimes get give extra value added to the lecture when people ask questions that you can then expand on and hopefully give extra information that you haven't been able to give so far or haven't thought to to give up to that point so Certainly that was a big benefit, I think, of the event that I did the other day. 
If I was to ask you to give me a brief definition of an amateur magician and a professional magician, you would probably quite rightly say, well, an amateur magician is somebody who, for whom magic is basically a hobby. And when they perform, they don't get paid. A professional is someone who earns a living or at the very least is someone who, when they work, they get paid for their services. Yeah, OK, that's absolutely fine. But there is also another thing that almost is implied by the words amateur and professional, that amateur equals, perhaps in lay people's mind, if you're an amateur, you're not very good at something. And if you're a professional, you're slick and really good at it. Now, anybody who's seen enough magicians will know that this definition isn't actually true. There are some amateur magicians who are incredibly skillful, who are extremely good entertainers. It's just that they, they don't choose to be professional. They don't earn a living at it. They don't even want to have a semi-pro status. They just like performing and they're very, very, very good at it. And then there are professional magicians who, yes, they do earn a living, or they try certainly try to, by getting paid for magic. But to be honest with you, when you watch them, you think they're really not that good. They might be okay to just about get away with it with lay people, but the standard of magic that they're offering doesn't really pull up any trees. And I can remember when I first started out as many years ago as a full-time professional, it used to kind of annoy me when in Yellow Pages, which is the way that everybody advertised, of course, in those days, when people who I knew had a full-time job and just did magic as a semi-professional on the, on the side, used to advertise themselves as professional ma magic or professional magicians. And I said, well, actually, you're not a professional magician, really, because you, you have another job and this is just your pin money, so you're not professional. But I understand now why they were saying that is it's because they wanted to imply, even if technically it wasn't correct, they weren't a full time professional magician. What they were trying to imply to the reader and to the potential booker was, I'm good at this. What you will get is a professional standard of performance, not that I'm a professional magician who does this all the time. And actually, that's I realise now that's absolutely perfectly fine. It's fair enough, isn't it? If you're trying to give yourself a benchmark that lay people will understand, you can do things like you can say, I'm a member of the inner magic circle, if you are. And since the magic circle is usually the only magic club that lay people have ever heard of, and which they might think, oh, that's got some, some kudos, then a magician who who is part of that organisation, it's naturally assumed he will be good at what he does and where he will know what he's doing. And that's where the word professional is being used as well. An amateur magician, if you say somebody is amateurish, then it's completely the opposite, isn't it? Or he's very amateurish. It means he's really not very good. And so why would you put, you wouldn't put in your advert, I'm an amateur magician, but I'm really good. So would you? Because th that wouldn't make any sense. Instead, you'd say, I'm professional. Hmm. Yes, you might be in the standard that you that you achieve. So that's why uh, I used to get annoyed, but without justification, really. So amateur and professional magicians, professional magicians should be good because they perform so often. But some people are just it's like any other 
sort of role or job or profession, not everybody's great at it. Not all professional magicians are great in the same way that not all amateur magicians are poor. So uh, that's some definitions that maybe that uh, that Leipel just simply used in order to get an idea of where you are in the performing quality stakes. Well, there we are. That's another podcast completed. I do hope you've had uh, had fun listening to it. Uh, and don't forget, if you ever want to make any comments uh, or add to what I've said, please do email me magic at markleverage.co.uk or go to my website and use the contact us um, little box where you can fill out your question or your comment. It's, it's always great to, to hear from people listening to the podcast. I know the podcast is, is pretty popular. A lot of people like to listen to it. And, and often I, people will tell me how much they enjoy it, which is fantastic. So if you uh, want to make any comments or if you've had a, a thought, you know, I wish he'd talk about or wonder what his thoughts are on, then write to me and tell me what you'd like me to, to consider talking about. And if I've got a view on it, obviously, I'll be very happy to do so. So thank you for listening and I'll see you on the next one.